Amen. That was awesome. That was awesome. (laughs) Need something like that to get the blood flowing. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful because truly you are awesome. And we come today, come together because of your awesomeness. And we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity once again to praise you and uh, to spend time together in worship and study of your word. And so, Father, I just pray um, that you would use these words to illumine our minds and to continue the process of transformation in each of our lives. I pray, Father, for whatever um, way that each of us individually needs to hear from you today, Lord, would you uh, speak to us. And um, I just thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to to share what uh, your spirit has laid upon my heart. And I pray, Father, that you would be the one that speaks, um, not only through me, but to me as well. So I thank you, Lord, for this time, and we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we began a series on total transformation, and we looked at how it's necessary if we're going to be changed um, for us to submit ourselves to the Lord as living sacrifices, and not dead sacrifices, but sacrifices that are living but dead to the things that formerly entangled and enticed us. And one of the other things we looked at last week was that in order for that to happen, we have to not conform to the things that are in the world around us, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And remember, we talked about the fact that that renewing process is like a renovation that takes place in what we think. And so... God wants to do that in us, and we pick up today in the next part of that message um, and talking about how God wants to continue to transform us, but also transform us in our relationships with others. And I don't think that there's anybody who um, can better speak to that kind of transformation than Paul, considering what God did in Paul's life. Um, so let's take a look um, at Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 3. And you can find that on page 922 in your pew Bible. And it says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as one body, in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function. So we who are many are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith. Ministry in ministering. The teacher in teaching. The exhorter in exhortation. The giver in generosity. The leader in diligence. The compassionate and cheerfulness. And Paul begins this section um, in a sense by pointing back to his own life and in particular God's grace in his life. As Paul continues to speak to this group of Gentile and Jewish Christians that comprise the church at Rome, he implores them not to think too highly of themselves. And when I read this passage, I know that Paul 
is speaking from his own personal experience. And it reminds me of what he says in Philippians chapter 3. And I want to read a little bit of that uh, with you. And what he's talking about in Philippians chapter 3 is about those who would preach that the Christians now need to be circumcised. And his answer um, that he gives sums up his life B.C., we call that, before Christ. And he says, starting at verse, the end of verse 4, he says, If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5 says, Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. Paul says a mouthful in these few verses. We have a saying that talks about someone uh, being born with a silver spoon in his or her mouth, and that would definitely be Paul. He says that he was circumcised on the eighth day, and that means that his parents adhered to the law from his birth. He can also trace his ancestry back to the tribe that he came from. And he didn't just come from any tribe. He came from the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Israel's first king, and one that had remained faithful when others had not. And he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. And calling oneself a Hebrew was a more preferred designation than that of Jew, which was used more often by and for outsiders. Calling himself a Hebrew of Hebrews also means that he spoke Aramaic. Not everyone retained the use of their native tongue over the generations, so Paul was distinguishing himself by this uh, label. And we know that Paul was a Pharisee, and we know how the Pharisees were strict observers of the law. And Paul was also a persecutor of the church. In Acts chapter 3, verse 3, it says, but, Paul, but Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. And as to righteousness under the law, Paul viewed himself as blameless. So we can see that Paul was zealous about his faith, and he was the kind of man that if you looked at him on paper, you would say that he had the total package. He had everything going for him. But when he came to Christ, he had to allow him to change the way he viewed himself. And it was the grace of God, as Paul says, that allowed him to begin to see himself for what he truly was. So Paul is saying to these Roman Christians and to us that the grace of God has given me the ability to see myself as I am. And I implore you by that same grace to allow him to do the same for you. Once Paul encountered God, he saw the emptiness and all that had previously 
defined him. His noble birth and circumcision meant nothing. His perceived righteousness according to the law was as filthy rags. In light of Christ and the grace that had been bestowed upon him, Paul was able to see himself as he really was. And this relationship changed him. He goes on to say that we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. And the word for think in the Greek means to exercise the mind. We can relate to that because we know about exercise. And in exercise, you want to be strenuous and you want to extend some energy. And so that's what this word in the Greek means. And it means to intensively interest oneself in something with concern or obedience. So we can see from that definition that this is not a passive exercise. This is not simply daydreaming about who I am and who I want to be. When we think about ourselves, we are to have obedience as our ultimate goal. And so I ask myself, how often do we really think about who we are? And secondly, how often do we do this with the ultimate goal of being obedient to what we discover? We need to spend time in self-examination, looking at who we are, and we are to do it soberly. When was the last time you sat down and soberly thought about who you are, where you are in your life, in your relationship with God, in your familial relationships? It's more difficult than we think. In order to think soberly about ourselves, we have to really examine ourselves closely, like like under a microscope. So what does it mean to really take a sober look at yourself? And if I'm honest about it, I don't know that I really take sober looks at myself as often as I should. Some synonyms for sober are serious, clear-headed, Restrained. That's pretty clear language. It means is that we are not to cut corners when thinking about or examining ourselves. We are to look at ourselves and think about who we really are. And what I realize when often when I'm examining myself, the real problem is I want to give myself a pass. You know, I don't, I don't want to be too harsh in judging myself. <laughs> and I suspect that you all do the same thing too. And the other problem is that when we think about ourselves and we recognize things that have become a part of us and maybe they've been there so long that we excuse them or make excuses for them. You know, that's just who I am, we often say. But the problem with that is I don't see any uh, justification for that in Scripture. Paul says no. He says you ought to think soberly about yourself. You need to look at yourself. You need to look at what's wrong with you. Look at what needs to change. And don't just glance, look. How are you going to change a part of you that you aren't even willing to acknowledge exists or is a problem? And think about it. Is what you see a reflection of the grace, love, and mercy of the God that you serve? 
What do you do, what do you need to do in order to fix that? What steps are you going to take? That's what it means to look soberly at yourself. And I can't look at this passage without thinking about how we usually think of sober, particularly on this celebratory weekend. And maybe you've encountered some people this weekend who were not sober. When you're not sober, your judgment is impaired. Your reflexes are slow, and your speech and your vision are unclear. But when you are sober, you see things just as they are. You can walk properly, and you can speak and be understood, and you can think coherently. And as a result, when we are sober, when we look at ourselves in a sober manner, we can assess ourselves appropriately. On the flip side, God doesn't want us to think about ourselves as being less than we are. The measuring rod for us is our faith, the faith that God has called us all to live our lives by. So when I think about my life, how does it line up with my faith? How does my my life live up with the faith that I profess? Am I living in accordance to what this world word teaches? That's a good point. Am I living in, in, in accordance with what the world teaches or what the world te- word teaches? Am I consciously applying it to every area of my life? Because, you know, we apply it to some areas and to some other areas we ignore what the word says. And it's easy to find another person to compare ourselves with. But the problem with us choosing to compare ourselves with another person is that we don't typically choose the right person to compare ourselves with. So when we choose, we're going to choose somebody. You can laugh. We can choose somebody who's going to make us look good, right? And maybe, you know, depending on where we might choose somebody who makes us feel worse, you know. But we're not going to necessarily make the right choice in choosing a person. And that's the wonderful thing about using our faith in God and his word as our measurement or standard in assessing ourselves. It doesn't cloud the issue with another person. It's just about me and where I am in my walk with God and what he's revealing to me about myself. And the thing about God is he doesn't condemn me. He convicts me. And I'd rather have conviction over condemnation any day. Paul goes on to connect how we see ourselves with how we see others because the two are really, really connected. How we see ourselves affects how we see and value other people. And to illustrate this point, he uses the human body. He says that we're all connected to Christ and the body, but we're also connected to one another. And we can't be connected to Christ as his body without being connected to one another. And we can't truly be connected to one another in the way that God intended without being connected to Christ. It's just not possible. So I was thinking about my body this past week, and, you know, I've had a revelation that I'm sure is going to rock your world. And I realized that my body is all one unit. I know you didn't know that. 
go out and tell the world I've made a great scientific discovery. Our bodies are all one unit. There's no seam that I can just unzip and take my, my arm off. It's all connected. And that's what God designed for us to be in the body. He designed us to be connected inside and out. The bones of my skeletal system don't just float around and go where they like. That would be total chaos. Suppose one of my ribs decided that they wanted to be vertical instead of horizontal or decided they wanted to be in my arm instead of in my torso. There is an order to how everything exists in our human bodies, and it is the same case in the body of Christ. The body is one complete unit. It is not parts. It is a whole. And that's what we are. We are one complete unit. And on top of that, we're all different. And you know, nobody understands difference better than married people. I listen to you guys talk. And you know, you date somebody and you marry them and then you begin to live together because that's the way it's supposed to be done. You get married and then you start living together. And then you live together and you find out that this person doesn't do things the same way that you do them. You know, the right way. Right? <laughs> you know, and then another example is it's families. You can look at children from the same family, from the same two parents, and they can be completely different. And it boggles the mind that two people made two totally different children. And that's how it is in the body of Christ. We bring all this difference from our families and our other relationships into Christ's body, the church. And we think, what a mess. And apart from God, it is a mess. But with him, it's a glorious reflection of the diversity and unity of his creation. And being different, we are called to operate in our areas of giftedness. Our bodies are not comprised only of femurs, but we do have them and they serve a particular purpose. And by the same token, we only have one spinal cord, and no other body part can do what the spinal cord does. There are certain needs and certain corresponding body parts to meet those needs. The same is in the case in the body of Christ. People have different God-given gifts, and they are all valuable and necessary in order for the body to function properly and for all of us to be transformed. So we're all here together, and that's the key. We are many. We are different in age, in race, in background, in size, in preference, in gifts and abilities, in educational level, in income level, in intelligence level. We are different, but we are here and we are supposed to be here. This is God's design. Verse 6 says that we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And what does that mean? It means that our gifts are specifically designed for the role that God intends for us to fulfill in the body. God desires to display his grace in our lives, and he gives us gifts 
based upon how he desires to display that grace. I may not be able to manifest the same gift to the degree that you do because God has not gifted me in that way and vice versa. According to the grace that God has bestowed upon our lives, he has given us gifts. And I was thinking about something else. Well, what, what part of the body do you think is most important? The brain, the skeletal system, the lymphatic system, the skin, the limbs, the cardiovascular system, the eyes, the toenails. We could do this all day. The point is that no body part is more important than another. The brain, for instance, is command central. It's constantly sending and receiving messages that our bodies are responding to, and most of them without our knowledge. But what about the nerves and vessels that carry messages to the brain? If they don't function, the brain can't do what it's designed to do. And the same goes for the heart. Then there are your toes. What about your toenails? If there were no toes, there would be no need for toenails. There's not one part of your body that can exist without or have purpose without the other parts. And that's the same for us. But we will never recognize and value others until we first value ourselves appropriately and recognize that we need each other. Some of you are brains. Some of us are hearts. Some of you are hands. And some of us are feet. And yes, some of us are toenails. You might be a part of the skeletal system that supports everything. You might be a kneecap or an elbow joint. You might be a liver that filters everything. Whatever we are, we are unique and valuable in each case. And Paul breaks it down even further and lists seven particular areas of giftedness. But this is not an exhaustive list. The point is that if you belong to the body of Christ, you have at least one gift, and most of us have several. You need to pray first and ask God to show you what your gift is. There are also tests that you can take called spiritual gifts inventories so that you can discover your gifts. But the thing is, once you discover your gift, use it. Some of you are called to use your gifts in the local church body. Others of you are called to use your gifts in other ways on the foreign mission field or on your job in the domestic mission field or in your neighborhood or in your community. Whatever gifts you have, they are needed in the body. And one final note. Whatever you do, do you. Nobody can be a better you than you. But in order to do you well, you must start with thinking soberly about yourself. That sober thinking will enable you to determine what is keeping you from being the best you you can be and fulfilling your role in the body. Even though we all serve individual purposes, we are also one body in Christ. And if one body part is not functioning well, the entire body suffers. 
So we're here to help each other transform. And we can't be transformed if we aren't connecting with and to one another. We are transformed not only through our relationship with Christ, but through our relationships with one another. If we didn't need each other, God wouldn't have given us to one another. We'd each have an individual relationship with Christ, and that would be it. But he didn't do it that way. Our transformation process is both individual and corporate. Paul is delivering this message to this young church in Rome filled with Jews and Gentiles. And he wants them to understand that they need each other. And it is with each other that we can truly change the world. And there's a song that I love, and I think it sums up what Paul is saying in this message. And if you know it, I invite you to join in and sing it with me. And I'll close with that. And it says, I need you. You need me. We're all a part of God's body. Stand with me. survive. When we connect with one another, we are both the better for it because we both become transformed through the experience. Amen.